You're listening to the official podcast of Oasis Community Church, where everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and anything's possible. If you'd like to learn more about Oasis, request prayer, or get in touch with a pastor, visit our website at oasischurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. So we've titled today's uh, sermon or lesson, Pass It On. And we've heard those um, passages that Justin read to us. First one out of 2 Kings about the passing of the mantle from Elijah to Elisha, the Hebrew prophets. And then out of the gospel where Jesus is kind of transfigured on the Mount of Transfiguration. And, and um, there's an insight into kind of who he is that they previously couldn't have known. Uh, Peter, James, and John, as they bore witness to Jesus' transfiguration. So what does that have to do with this kind of modified version of telephone uh, slash Pictionary? Well, as you might know, for if you've played the game telephone very often, if you get a group of people, um, you know, 8, 10, 12, 15, 20, 30 people in a circle, and you whisper a sentence into one person's ear, and that person whispers the sentence into the next person's ear, and it happens again and again and again, by the time you make it around, it's often not the same thing that was first whispered. Now, sometimes that's intentional, because there's some cheeky little kid who thinks they're going to be funny, and they change something, right? But even when we try and do it, right, something's kind of always lost in the process, or Something's kind of modified in the process. So this is pretty amazing. This is a modified version of If you want to play it at home with your family, I would encourage you to do so. So kind of start with a stack of like index cards and let one person write a sentence and pass the stack to the next person. That person will read the sentence, move it to the back, and then have to draw the sentence. And then the next person will only see a drawing, and then they pass on the stack, and they have to write what they see. And then you're going back and forth between writing what you see and drawing what you see. And it's a lot of fun, um, particularly depending on what the initial sentence is and how good the drawers or interpreters in your family are. But that's, that's part of what we're talking about today as we kind of end Epiphany, is that <clears throat> epiphanies are something that are shared. And when things are shared, um, they're, they're, not, they're never shared in kind of a neutral way. Or they're never shared in a way that kind of is free of interpretation. There's always kind of something. Like, Christianity isn't just a matter of knowing certain facts and figures, right? Christianity is about knowing a person. And that person is Christ. And the way you get to know a person, again, is not to know simply statistics about the person. How tall are they? How much do they weigh? How old are they? Where were they born? What's their favorite color, right? Seems like that's what, when I first meet students at the college, they're always interested in those types of things. What's your favorite movie? What's your favorite song? What's your favorite color? I just want to say, I don't have favorites. Not like that. You know, I'm not reducible to just, you know, you can't just peg me and figure me out so, so easily. Like, you're going to have to spend some time with me. You're going to have to get to know me. And one of the things that I find fascinating about that passage of Scripture out of Second Kings that Justin read for us is the way in which Elisha continually responds to the older Elijah and the way in which the older Elijah responds initially and then changes his response to the younger Elisha. 
Now, I want to say this. One of my favorite interpreters of the Old Testament is a scholar by the name of Walter Brueggemann. And Brueggemann says this about kings. I've said it a lot myself, but I've, I've been repeating him when I said it. So, so in, the, in the Hebrew Bible, um, Kings is one book. It's like one scroll. So what we call First and Second Kings, they just called Kings. When it got translated into Greek, um, it was, there were four of them. First Kings, Second Kings, Third Kings, Four Kings. It was split into four groups. But the Hebrew scroll, again, is just one story. And so that story, Brueggemann says, instead of simply titling it Kings... We should have titled it Kings with a question mark on the end. Like, Kings? (laughs) Because it's a story that starts with Solomon, where there's a united kingdom, and they have all the wealth and all the power and all the security and everything you might want. And it slowly devolves. Right after Solomon, it divides into two separate kingdoms, north and south. And then the northern kingdom does a lot of kind of wrong things, and they eventually get judged, and the Assyrians come and destroy them. And the southern kingdom, which is just a, just a fraction of what the whole kingdom once was, limps along for a few more generations, and then it's destroyed, right? And so kings, um, what we call second kings, kind of ends with the king of Judah being blinded and taken into captivity into Babylon. So not exactly a success story, right? Hence Brueggemann's kings. <laughs> and so... <clears throat> In that story, which is the story of kings, there is another story. Like the kings are not the only characters in the story. And although the king, the story of the kings is a story of kind of failure, the other story is the story of the prophets. And the story of the prophets is a story of succession. And I, I mean that in both ways, right? Um, it's a double entendre there. It's succession meaning it's passed on. in in healthy ways that the kings fail to pass it on. But it's also a success, right? So halfway through 1st and 2nd Kings, halfway through the story, is 2nd Kings 2. That's halfway through the story, which is the part that we heard read today. And that's the story, interestingly enough, not of kings, but of prophets. And it's the story of the main prophet, Elijah, getting ready to depart this world and him leaving the responsibility and the faith and the ministry of prophecy to his mentee, uh, his disciple, his student, Elisha. So as the story begins, um, Elijah has told Elisha, hey, my days on this planet are not are numbered. I'm not going to be here much longer. And when I leave... I want you to kind of take over what I'm doing. Like, you're my successor. You're the one I'm tapping. You're the one I'm leaving this to. And Elisha is like, great. I'll just stick with you until then. And and, and, uh, Elijah's like, no, I tell you what. You stay here because I've got some stuff to do. And I'm going to go down here to this other place and get it done. And Elisha's like, no, no, let, let me come. He's like, well, okay, okay, well, you come along, come along. And so Elisha goes along with him. And they get the, Elijah does his work and stuff. And then Elijah says, all right, now, now you stay here, and I'm going to go, because I've got this other place I have to get to, and I've got these other things I need to do, but you stay here, because I've, I've already told you that you know, you're, you're my number one, and I'm going to leave it all to you, so you just stay here. And Elisha's like, no, 
No, I, I don't want to stay. I want to, I want to be with you. That's, that's, the, that's the whole point. He's like, okay, okay, why don't you come along, come along. And this happens again and again and again. And then finally, Elijah's like this. He's like, now, I've got to go to the other side of the Jordan. And if you come with me, when I depart, you'll get a double portion of all that I am. And Elisha's like, so you want me to be with you? Yeah, yeah, just come with me. He's like, okay, I, I can do that. And I know he's got to be thinking, that's all I've ever asked. <laughs> I've, in fact, I've asked this over and over and over, and you kept telling me no, and I had to be kind of insistent that I could be with you, and so you, you conceded. And now, finally, at the end, you're asking me if I want to be with you, and the answer, of course, is yes. And I think part of this kind of expresses so much of life in general, right? This is kind of that quintessential cats in the cradle. You know, you know that idea about kind of the absentee uh, parent and uh, they're always absent and then the child just wants to be with the parent and then the parent has done everything else in their life and then when the child grows up, the parent's like, oh, you're an interesting person. I'd like to spend time with you. But the child has no time for the parent because he, the child's busy, right? And of course, the child has learned how to be in the world from the parent. The child has become just like the parent. And, and of course, that's what happens. People don't simply learn from what we tell them. They learn by what we show them. There's an old adage that says, more is caught than taught. I love that one. More is caught than taught. Right? Because people, again, they're not just learning certain words to say. They're learning how to be, and they're learning what to do, and they're learning the perspective of things. Remember when those WWJD bracelets were really popular? Maybe you have one on right now. I don't know. But the challenge with the WWJD is it kind of tried to reduce the complexity of life into a simple question. Well, what would Jesus do? Well, I need to ask some other questions, right? I need to ask the questions of why would Jesus do it? I need to ask the question, how would Jesus do it? I need to ask the question, what would Jesus not do? I need to ask the question, well, what would Jesus say or what would Jesus pray? Right? So it's not just a matter of that one thing. Life is complex, and trying to oversimplify it doesn't make it easier or better. It actually misses the nuances and the subtleties that actually make life what it is. And that can only be picked up by proximity. So we're all now in this kind of post-COVID reality. You know what I mean by that. I'm not saying that COVID doesn't, isn't around anymore. Some of you might have had it recently. But we're not in the, in the heat of, a, of the pandemic, right? We've, we've learned a few things. Yeah, thank God, right? So we've learned a few things uh, from all that. And there was a, a college president up in New York uh, State, upper state New York, who he was asked, you know, what's the, what's the one thing that you learned from COVID? He said, well, the one thing we've learned is that distance education just doesn't work as well as we thought it did. Like, the outcomes aren't actually there. So kind of despite the technology that we have and the fact that we had technology, but we didn't know how to use it very well, 
We have used it better than we used to use it, but when we measure what our students learned, we realize they weren't learning what we thought they were learning. Now granted, he was just given a lot of money by a benefactor, and he has this really small faculty-student ratio, so he's, he's kind of in a, in a place maybe a lot of people aren't. But the point, I think, is still this, that we learn when we're near people in ways that are a bit intangible, right? We call them, in the job market, they call them soft skills. Like, are you good at communicating? Like, are you easy to be around? How do you handle stress or conflict? Like, that's rarely actually on the curriculum that you're supposed to learn, but it is a part of what Parker Palmer will call the hidden curriculum, right? The really deep part about what does it mean to be a human? <laughs> In fact, what does it mean for me to be me? All of this, these texts today, I think are pointing kind of in this direction. In fact, next week is Lent. Um, Wednesday night is, uh, Wednesday is Ash Wednesday. Next week starts Lent. And for our Lenten series, we've titled it, How to Be Human. And you might think, I already know how to be human. But you should come and find out. It might be different than what you think. <laughs> right? So, how to be human. That's what we're going to talk about. And so today, this idea of passing it on from Elijah to Elisha, and then that gets played out again now with Jesus and his disciples, right? Jesus is often getting up early. He's going to the mountain. He's going away to pray. But he's kind of constantly kind of bringing his disciples along with him. Like, come on, fellas, let's go. Let me, let me show you something. And, and as they do that, they're learning from Jesus. They're not just learning like when he preaches a sermon in the synagogue. They're, they're living with him, right? They're there in the morning. They're there in the noonday. They're there in the afternoon. This is, this is a full life experience for them. And as Jesus has brought Peter, James, and John to what we call the mountain of transfiguration, Jesus is not transfigured in the sense that he becomes something different than he was before. That's not the transfiguration. That's not what it means. His, their perception of him is transfigured. right? They see something about him that they didn't know before. So what's really being transfigured is not so much Jesus, because he's still the same, fully divine and fully human. But they're seeing that kind of physical manifestation of the divine in ways that they previously couldn't see it before. And of course, they're not quite sure what to do. Peter says, Lord, should we build like three tents, one for you and one for Moses and Elijah, who've also kind of shown up there on the mountain? And I was laughing about this earlier with someone. The text there in Mark says, when Peter says that, uh, Lord, should we build three tabernacles, one for each of you? The, the text says, Peter said this because he didn't know what to say. <laughs> I've always thought that was a funny little commentary, right? A little parenthetical note. Well, maybe Peter knew more than Mark realized. Like, staying in that place would have been desirable. If now I know what I didn't know before... And now I've seen Jesus as a figure of light standing with Moses and Elijah. Maybe that is a good place to camp out. Maybe we would like to stay on the mountain. 
Because just before this, Peter had said to Jesus, you are the Christ. And Jesus says, well, that's true. And the Son of Man must suffer and be persecuted and die. And on the third day, raise again. And Peter's like, that's not what I was talking about. That's not what I meant when I said you're the Christ. And Jesus is like, well, that is what it does mean, though. It might not be what you meant. But it is what it means that I'm the Christ, that the Son of Man must suffer and die and the third day be raised again. And so now Peter's seeing Jesus transfigured, right? And he's probably remembering what Jesus just said to him six days prior. And it, this is funny. It tells us that it's been six days. And certainly that has something to do with Moses being on the mountain six days and Elijah taking six days to get to the mountain all of that's kind of layered in the long story of Scripture. But yeah, he's thinking, yeah, if, if this is really what it means that you're the Christ, not just that you're the Messiah, the Anointed One, the one God has sent, but in some real way, you are the one who's, who was being sent. Like, you're, you're the light. We should stay here. It's, I don't know if you've ever been in like a, a church a kind of worship service where you're kind of yourself kind of spiritually raptured and time seems to almost fade away. It would be like a good place to stay. Now, I know some of you are thinking an extended church service, that's not heaven, that's hell. <laughs> and I, I'm not talking about when we kind of try to do church well and we get it wrong. I'm saying like when you're really kind of experiencing the deep presence of God, you can get a sense like, I'd like to stay here. Like actually in the history of the, of, of the Christian worship services, the way they're designed, because when we come to the table, there's an expectation that we will experience the risen Christ. The church father said that the table was, quote-unquote, an eschatological table. That at the table we experience heaven. We are no longer in our present time. We are kind of in uh, like a future time. And that we're experiencing the presence of God. And that should be such a wonderful, beautiful thing that if we have eyes to see what we're experiencing, we might, we might just want to stay. And so the idea of the benediction is not simply to end with some nice words or good words, but the benediction is a commissioning. It's a sending out. Yes, this is beautiful. Yes, we, we offer our adoration to Christ. Yes, it would be nice if we could just stay here and not have to worry about the troubles of our lives, right? We could just stay here in the beauty and the goodness of God. But someone's supposed to stand up and typically, traditionally, it would be a deacon. For us, it's Mikkel. And he says, get out of here. Right? Go. I mean, sober to messa after the table. Be nice to one another. But the point is, you are being sent out. And you're being sent out to carry with you that which you've been given. Jesus says, they will know that you are my disciples because you have love one for another. The love that we have for each other is the love that we've been given by God. That love that we've been given by God, we've received from God because we've been in close proximity to God. 
And we've become in close proximity of God, not because we've gotten up and moved somewhere, but because God has pursued us. And God is close to us. But here's, here's a real kicker for us. In American kind of evangelical and Pentecostalism, we've often thought about this in kind of radical individualized terms. We've put a lot of it on our own onus that we have to do certain things. We have to think certain thoughts and we have to say certain prayers and we have to do this and do that and then God will be pleased with us, right? Then God will save us. But the point is, it's not so much just me and God. It's something that I've learned along the way, the way that Elisha learned it from Elijah, the way that Jesus' students learned it from their teacher, right? You realize Jesus was a rabbi? You knew that? Rabbi just means teacher. And we say he had disciples, but the word that we translate disciples is the same word that would be translated student. Like there's not another word in Greek that can be translated student, mathetes. So we have a teacher who has students. And the way this teacher has students is not just to sit in a classroom and lecture at them for 45 minutes. But to live with them, to be with them, to eat with them, to pray with them, to work with them, to, to rest with them, to travel with them. And that's exactly what Elisha was asking for over and over and over from his father, Elijah, his spiritual father. I just want to be with you. And I think that's what Peter is saying when he says, hey, can we, can we pitch some tents here? I just want to be with you. And I think it's beautiful because Jesus has been transfigured, but it's not like he's holding on to that transfigured reality of light and he's just going to hang with Moses and Elijah. He leaves all of that because who does he want to be with? He wants to be with Peter, James, and John. And so he's with them. I mean, the voice, the, the epiphany of all of this is that epiphany begins with the baptism of Jesus, as we have in our icon over here, where a voice says from heaven, at least in Mark's gospel, you are my son in whom I'm well pleased. But it ends on the Mount of Transfiguration, where a voice again comes from the clouds. But this time in Mark, it's in the third person. It's more of an announcement. This is my son. Do what he says. <laughs> Listen to him. Listen to him. Follow him. Obey. The, the word for obey, again in Greek, it's a compound word. It means to listen under. To listen under. To, be, to listen under. You've got to be close. To hear, to hear like that... To, to learn that way, you, you have to be near. In the, in the Mishnah, there's talk about the relationship between students and their teachers. Um, one, of the, one of the language is kind of sitting at their feet. Uh, we, see this in, we see this in Scripture too sometimes. Like Paul will say when he learned from the rabbi Gamaliel that he sat at his feet. Or when Mary, you know, comes, when Jesus comes to Bethany and Martha's in there kind of 
working in the kitchen and she sits at his feet. That To be at the feet of the teacher is the typical student-teacher kind of position. The, the other reference is that you would closely follow your teacher. Because rabbis would often move around, right? They wouldn't just stay at one synagogue. They would move from village to village and they would have their students who would follow them. And so to move with your rabbi is to like closely follow them. And, and both of that, both sitting at the feet of and moving around in that kind of dusty environment led them to realize that sometimes if you're that close to someone, their dust could kind of get on you. And so there's a blessing in the Mishnah that goes roughly uh, translated and maybe paraphrased, goes something like this. May, may you dwell in the dust of your rabbi. May you live in the dust of your rabbi. May the dust of, the, of your rabbi be upon you. I kind of love that. May the dust of your rabbi be upon you. Like, one of the reasons I, I want to have, we do the whole coffee with Robbie thing, is not just so I can know your name so that if you end up in the hospital and I show up, I don't have to say, what's your name again? I mean, I don't want to have to ask your name if you're in the hospital. But because I want to be with you, because coming for an hour, hour and 15 minutes on Sundays is a great thing to do, but it's not the level that we need in order to be close to one another. Like, you, you, we need, you need it and I need it, we need the dust of our teachers on us. And we only get that when we're close to them. It's one of the reasons I think the best way to practice this doesn't scale extremely well. I have one of my rabbis with us today. Ricky Cotton. Hey, Ricky. One of my prayers is that Ricky's dust would be on me. Because I'm close enough to him. I'm, I'm with him often enough that we pray together and we have a spiritual friendship. We talk together so that the dust that he kicks up is inevitably going to be on me. And I hope that somehow in my life I'm kicking up some dust and that there are some people close enough to me that, that my dust is on them. It's a dusty bunch we are. But you know what? This Wednesday, if you so choose to come, we're going to have a self-reflection where you can read some scripture and hear some songs, and then you can come forward, and either Carol or Mikkel will say to you, from dust you have come, and to dust you shall return. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Go and sin no more. We have come from the dust. In Genesis 2 the story is not that God spoke humans into existence, like created us out of nothing, but rather it says that God took the dust of the ground and molded it into a human. It's the Adama, that's the Hebrew. And then he breathes the breath of life into the dust, and the dust becomes a human being. It becomes an Adam. You can hear 
uh, etymologically the, co- the closeness of those two words, right? The Adama, the dust, becomes the Adam, the human. Dusty. <laughs> the dust becomes dusty. In a way, dusty would be a good name if we were writing some kind of allegory or metaphor for what it means to be a human. And we would name our human being in the story Dusty. Because Dusty's made from the dust. Because Dusty is filled with the life of God. But that's exactly who Jesus is. Jesus is fully human. He's the dustiest of every dusty one. And he is filled with God. Delivering us from our bondage to sin and death. And setting us free to be like him. It's a little preview for the Lenten series. How to become human could also be titled. How to be like Jesus. Because he is the human. I'm excited about this. I love this stuff. I don't know if there's another story in all of the Old Testament that I like better than 2 Kings 2. It's a a story I often heard told about another Ricky in my life. You don't have to be named Ricky in order to be a mentor of mine, but it helps. Because there's a passage of Scripture... That's not included in the lectionary today. But it's a story, it's just a few chapters later in 2 Kings, it's 2 Kings 6, and it's a story about when Elisha has now become the old man. So in our story, Elisha was the young man, and he kept following around trying to stick, you know, trying to stick with Elijah. Hey Elijah, I want to be with you. <laughs> that's what it sounds like in my head. <laughs> and Elijah's like, okay, finally, come on. At this point now, Elisha is old. And he doesn't have a single kind of mentee. He has a whole school of prophets. And they come to him and say, Father, our house is too small. We don't have space. We need to add on. We we need to expand because look at all these people. And he says, yes, you're right. Go be blessed and build. And they all just stay there. And he tries it again. I said, go, be blessed and build. And they're like, but Father, we, we don't want to go without you. And so they go down to the river and they start to cut down some logs. They're going to build this room, right? And one of the guys who's cutting down a log, it says that he had borrowed his axe. And as he's cutting it down... The axe, the axe head breaks off and it falls into the lake and it sinks. That's what happens to axe heads when they're in the lake. They sink. And so the old prophet comes and prophesies and the axe head floats. And that's kind of the end of the story. Which you might think, that's a funny way to end the story of a story about building on a bigger room. If the story was about building on the bigger room, they would have told the, the end of the story about the building. The story's not about building the bigger room. 
the story is about the younger generation being with the older one and the older one being with the younger one. That's what the story's about. The floating of the axe head is just God's announcement or his blessing on the union of the generations that they wanted to be with Elisha, just like Elisha had wanted to be with Elijah, just like Peter, James, and John want to be with Jesus. You want to know this? Those other disciples, the other nine, you know how they experienced the transfiguration? They experienced it as a testimony told by Peter, James, and John. They experience it exactly the same way we experience it. They hear about it. So we are all there. We are all there together hearing about the testimony of what's happened to Jesus and now being asked to live. So here is my prayer and my blessing for you today. May the dust of your rabbi be all over you. We hope you were blessed by today's podcast. If you liked what you heard and want to support us, you can do so by subscribing wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can leave us a review on iTunes, and if you want to contribute to Oasis financially, you can go to oasischurch.org. May the Lord bless you and keep you, and may God's face shine upon you and give you peace. Amen.